Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to California Dreaming. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to share a few things about this podcast with you. This is an independent one-woman production, which means I depend on you, the listeners, to keep us going and growing. And there are a few simple things that you can do to help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever apps you use to listen to your shows on. You can recommend the show in true crime discussion and fan groups. You can join our discussion group. We've got a bunch of new members this week because I went around and started begging people to join. And if you would like to do a little bit more to help keep the puppies' bellies full of treats, then you can go over to Patreon and search for California Dreaming. The link is also in the show notes. And check out the exclusive bonus episodes that you can access starting at $1 a month. And if a subscription is not your thing and you would still like to help, you can make a donation to the show through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. I need to also provide you with this warning before we start. These episodes may contain graphic details including gun violence, sexual violence, sexual abuse, and strong language, and it is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And sources for this story include the book All She Slash He Wanted by Aphrodite Jones, as well as numerous articles and documents online, and everything is listed in the show notes. Okay, let's get started with this brand new series. When Tom Nissen arrived at home sometime around three in the morning on New Year's Eve of 1993, he came knocking on the back door of his own tiny little house that he shared with his wife Candy, who was very pregnant at the time, along with her two other young children that may or may not be Tom's, but it seemed like it had gotten to the point that nobody really cared anymore. Candy thought it was weird that Tom would be knocking at the back door. He never entered their home that way, especially since he not only always used the front door, but they also never locked the front door either, but they did keep the back door locked. However, just like the paternity of their kids, Candy didn't really care to ask questions either way. It did annoy her that Tom would want to come through the locked back door, knowing that she would be asleep at that hour, knowing that she was about to pop with baby number three. But she got up at that ungodly hour and let him in. As she made her way towards the back, she passed by her friend Rhonda McKenzie, who was sleeping on the floor in the front room. When she got to the back door and opened it, few words were exchanged when Tom and his friend John Lauder came inside. Tom immediately asked Candy to grab them a bottle of bleach. Still, she asked no questions, 
though she was able to ascertain that there was something that Tom had had on his hands that he desperately wanted to clean, and he wanted her help. John looked on as Candy helped Tom rinse his hands with bleach over the sink. Though she didn't really get a look at what it was he was so desperate to scour away. She actually really didn't give a shit. She just wanted to lay back down and go to sleep. Meanwhile, John made his way to the front room where his girlfriend Rhonda was and he started talking to her. When Tom was finished, he took off his jacket and joined John and Rhonda in the front room and eventually Candy just joined them also. John and Tom needed Candy and Rhonda to listen carefully to what they had to say. If anybody asks, they arrived home sometime between 12.30 and 1. If the cops come around asking questions, make sure that that's the story and make sure that they keep it straight. Candy and Rhonda agreed that that's what they would say if they were ever questioned about that evening. Tom then demanded that Candy take a look at his clothing to see if she could spot any blood. I guess that finally pushed her over the edge to a point where she would start asking questions. You want me to look for blood? What do you mean blood? Tom didn't say anything while she went ahead and scanned his clothing for any stains and she didn't really notice any. Tom wasn't feeling very well and soon he up and ran to the bathroom and threw up. By the time he was finished, John and Rhonda were fast asleep and... His wife was already back in bed, so whatever was going on with these guys wasn't anything that any of these people were about to lose any sleep over, apparently. So Tom went ahead into his bedroom and crawled into bed with Candy. He said something to her along the lines of that they had nothing to worry about, that their problems were solved. Candy still had no clue what the hell he was talking about, nor did she really even care. She rolled her pregnant belly over the other way and went back to sleep. Dreamers, I can't imagine that there are too many significant others out there that would be this lukewarm and nonchalant about their husbands slash boyfriends coming home like this, asking for bleach, asking to spot check for blood, and then simply rolling over and going back to bed. But okay, if it were me, my husband would have some splaining to do. Fast forward to around 10 a.m. that same morning of December 31st, 1993. Just around the time that the foursome were about to start getting up, a call had come in into the Richardson County Sheriff's Office to report a multiple murder. The emergency response team, who are made up of volunteers in the town of Humboldt, Nebraska, population at that time barely topped a thousand, the response team were stunned. Multiple murders? Nothing like that ever happened in Humboldt. And today, the population in the town is even less, estimated to be approximately 810. Within minutes, Deputy Ray Herod and Dr. Stephen Stripe were also on their way to the scene. The reports were coming in that there were two women and a baby that had been murdered. The location was a modest farm home just south of Humboldt. At the start of the day, the thought was this was going to be a quiet, easygoing New Year's Eve. 
If anyone had said that they would be hit with a triple murder, they'd tell him that they were crazy. Deputy Herod, less than a minute behind the ambulance that was carrying Dr. Stripe, instructed him that if he got there before him, do not go inside the home until he got there. When Deputy Herod arrived, he drew his gun and cautiously made his way into the scene of the murders. Upon entering, he encountered the first victim, a young black male who was on the floor, sort of propped up and kind of leaning off to the side. And it was obvious that he had been shot in the head. The bullet had gone through his jaw and came out the top right side of his head. There was a coffee table, kind of askew, covering his legs. A paramedic felt for a pulse, but did not find one, and then took a look around the room to see if there was any clue as to what could have possibly happened to see if he could find if there was a weapon nearby in case this was a possible murder-suicide type of situation. But what drew the paramedic's attention was the blowout mess caused when this young man took that bullet to the head. When emergency services and the sheriff's deputy arrived at the farmhouse, they found a woman there named Anna Mae Lambert. She was in the dining area of the room, feeding her infant grandson, Tanner, a bottle of formula. Anna Mae was the one who happened upon the gruesome scene just after 10 a.m. that morning, and she was certain of the time because when she arrived there, this was her daughter's home. She had glanced at the clock on her dashboard and it read 10.05. When Anna Mae made her way up to the front porch of her daughter's house, and her daughter's name was Lisa, she saw Lisa's dog. So she really didn't notice that the front door had been kicked in because there was also a screen door. So she didn't see right away that something was amiss, but then again, this woman doesn't exactly strike me as the most observant person on the planet. She tapped on the screen door a couple of times, but nobody was coming. And what was troubling was she could hear Tanner crying from inside the home. So she pulled the screen door open and went through the front door. And that's when she saw the young man dead right there in the living room. She immediately assumed that Lisa was probably dead too. That's just where her head automatically went. She followed Tanner's cries that were coming from the bedroom. She went into the room and she noticed that the whole entire room, the carpeting, it was soaked with water. She went over to his crib and she picked Tanner up and he was wet too. His skin was freezing cold. His eyes, his face, everything was red. It was obvious that he had been crying hysterically for a long time. His diaper was soaked. He was starved. And as she held him, she looked over to her left and saw her 22-year-old daughter, Lisa, Tanner's mother, lying dead in the bed with blood that had come from her mouth running down the side of her face. But Lisa wasn't the only dead person in the bed. 
there was somebody else next to her, but Anime wasn't aware of who the person was. And at that time, she couldn't even tell if that other person was a male or female. There was a phone in the bedroom, which Anime quickly grabbed to call for help. And it was kind of different how she went about it, not like we would normally hear someone calling 911 and staying on the phone until help arrived. No, it didn't happen that way. She took the phone and Tanner. She made her way into the kitchen. She grabbed the phone book and looked up the police department and dialed. The first call that she had made was picked up and then at some point became disconnected. She called back. She gave the reason for her call. She gave the address of their location and she hung up and waited for help to arrive. Aware of this being a crime scene, but still needing to get Tanner a bottle, she used a towel as she pulled the refrigerator door open. She found some formula, and she nearly had to ransack the kitchen to find a bottle, which she finally did in one of the cabinets. She made him some formula, she warmed it up, she sat down and fed the baby while she waited and tried not to mess with anything else much more than that. It felt like an eternity had passed in the time that it took her to get that bottle made and warmed up. So she called back to see if anybody was coming. It only seemed like forever. Just as she put down the phone, help was arriving. The first officer on the scene told Anime that she and Tanner needed to go outside, which she did. Dr. Stripe had arrived. He took a look at Tanner, and other than a messy nappy, he was okay. But he and Grandma were transported by ambulance to the local hospital anyway, just as a precaution. State of Nebraska investigator Jack Wyant was contacted by the Richardson County Sheriff's Department less than 15 minutes after the emergency call came in from Anna Mae. Investigator Wyant was told that Sheriff Charles Lux was on his way to Humboldt to the scene of the triple murder. This was 1993, so unless you were Zach Morris on Saved by the Bell, you probably did not have a cell phone. So Investigator Wyant waited, giving Sheriff Lux time to get there at the scene, and then he called the landline to the house to speak to him. When Sheriff Lux got there, he was able to positively identify the two people in the bed as Lisa Lambert and Tina Brandon, both females, he reported. Dreamers, I'll just put it out there right now that Sheriff Charles Lux, we're going to find, is one of the most garbage human beings in this entire story, if not the most garbage human being. Because he is a man who, at the time, held the badge that he received when he swore to protect the community and uphold the law. I'd even go so far as to say, because he had that badge, that in and of itself makes him worse than anybody else in this entire narrative. Anyway, Sheriff Lux was able to relay the information that one week earlier, Tina Brandon had reported having been raped, and that investigation was still ongoing. Sheriff Lux also told Investigator Wyant that there were two suspects that they were still looking into 
in that rape case, a couple of local troublemakers. Wyatt wanted the sheriff to get his investigators to track down those rape suspects while he mobilized his crime scene investigation team, and they started making their way from Lincoln to Humboldt, which was about an hour and a half away. Dreamers, to put this all into perspective, where we are with this story, it doesn't really get much more middle America than Nebraska, and we have been in Nebraska on a previous case in our series entitled Dr. Serial Killer. That was a case of Anthony Garcia, who was convicted of killing four people in Omaha, Nebraska. So yeah, this is middle America. In fact, almost quite literally, it's middle America. The geographic center of the contiguous 48 states is just slightly north of the city of Lebanon, Kansas, which is population 178. And that geographic center is pretty much Lebanon's only attraction. Our story today takes place in Humboldt, Nebraska, known as the heartbeat of the heartland, and it is only a three-hour drive east of Lebanon. And in case you're interested in random trivia, the actual geographic center of the United States shifted in the mid-20th century with the addition of Alaska and Hawaii into the Union. It shifted 550 miles or 885 kilometers northwest to Belfouche, South Dakota. I think that's how you say that town. If I'm wrong, you can go ahead and call me out on it. I'm used to it. When Investigator Wyatt arrived, the sheriff and the county attorney were waiting there, wanting to speak to him. On the outside of the home, they showed him some tire tracks that they found, as if someone had sped off in a pretty big hurry, and they found one single footprint near the tire tracks that was so barely visible that Wyatt would not even be able to make a cast of it. He would be lucky if he would be able to get any details from that footprint at all. But his first impression of it was that it was some sort of athletic type shoe. Something that was immediately apparent about the crime scene, other than the three murdered people, was that it did not appear that much of anything else inside the farmhouse was out of place. There was that table that was across the male victim's legs in the living room that was slightly askew, but otherwise it didn't seem like anyone put up much of a fight. Investigators looked at the various knickknacks and photos that adorned the walls. Everything was where it should be. And it was New Year's Eve, so holiday decorations were, were still hung up around the home. Stockings, lights, a Christmas tree. Anyway... As it turned out, Dr. Stephen Stripe was also married to a doctor, Dr. Stephanie Stripe. So we'll refer to them as Dr. Stephen and Dr. Stephanie from this point forward to differentiate. Dr. Stephanie had also arrived at the scene. She checked for signs of life from the three victims and confirmed that all of them were deceased. It turned out that Dr. Stephanie was very well acquainted with the victim Lisa Lambert. But as she placed her fingers on her to check for a pulse, she had a hard time seeing the person that she knew in life because 
of all the injuries that Lisa had sustained about her face. There was one person who was at the farmhouse who seemed like a bit of a busybody as she chatted with the various members of law enforcement and emergency rescue personnel, and her name was Shannon Frankenhauser. She apparently had a bit of information that most others were not aware of, and she seemed more than happy to share that information with anyone who would listen. The victim who had been on the bed next to Lisa, identified as Tina Brandon, was the same person that most people in the city of Humboldt knew as Brandon Tina. He had just recently moved to the area from Lincoln, Nebraska, for basically a fresh start where nobody knew him after running into some personal and legal issues in his hometown. Brandon's assigned gender at birth was female, but he had begun identifying as a male in his early adolescence. When his story became known to us, well, some of us, back in 1993 or early 1994 even, I don't even think that this was actually a nationwide story just yet, but the media that did pick up on this triple murder, when they discussed Brandon Tina, he was misgendered by the police and the media, and because his mom, Joanne, had rejected his gender identity, she also misgendered him as well. She arranged for Brandon's headstone to say, Tina Brandon, daughter, sister, friend. When Brandon's story was made into a movie in 1999 entitled Boys Don't Cry, and this is when Brandon's story became known to the masses, Joanne publicly expressed her outrage when the actress who portrayed her son in the film, Hilary Swank, referred to him as Brandon Tina during her acceptance speech when she won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her portrayal of Brandon. Times have changed since 1993 and even since 1999. And as of now, I could find very little about Joanne Brandon online, but the important thing is that we, as a society in general, have changed. The media has changed also. And I even found an article written by someone who had reported on this story almost 30 years ago and issued a huge apology for misgendering Brandon and dead naming him in the articles that were written by this person. Many of the news outlets back then even referred to Brandon as a lesbian. And one of the sources that I am using for this case is a book written by Aphrodite Jones entitled All She Wanted. And the word she is stylized in a way on the cover with the S in the she printed in white and the he part is italicized and printed in red. And Jones does at times throughout the book refer to Brandon as Tina and uses the pronouns she and her instead of he and him. Anyway, Brandon had only recently moved to the area and nobody was aware that he was transgender. But this Shannon Frankenhauser person was all too happy to go around as if it was some sort of juicy small town gossip, which I guess 29 years ago it was. 
and she just wanted to let everybody know, and she framed it like this. You know that cute boy, that new cute boy in town, Brandon? He's really that dead female laying in the bed next to Lisa. So while Shannon was going around spreading this gossip, Investigator Wyatt continued to examine the crime scene and to collect evidence. He found that the front door jam on the inside of the door had been broken and torn away from the wall. It had been kicked in with such force that there was broken drywall all over the floor in the entranceway from the door molding being ripped off from the wall. But Wyatt didn't really find a shoe print on the door, so he thought perhaps someone had used the full force of their upper body and shoulder to bust through instead. In the living room where the male victim was found, there was no sign that there was a struggle of any kind. Nothing was out of place with the exception of that coffee table as previously mentioned. It was discovered that this male victim did have a prosthetic leg, and when he was shot, that that leg may have caused the coffee table to be kicked out of place by the way he may have fallen or landed. He was on the floor, and there was a large blood stain on the white shirt that he was wearing. I believe he was wearing like a turtleneck. When Wyatt took a closer look at the victim, he discovered another bullet wound in his neck. According to reports, the only item collected from the area of the home where this victim was found was a small sample of a reddish stain in the carpet that was close to the point of entry. The young man with the prosthesis was identified when his wallet was found nearby as 23-year-old Philip Devine. Nobody at the scene was familiar with who he was. They had no idea how he ended up here. It was later determined that he was dating the sister of a young woman that Brandon Tina had been dating. We will get into those details as the story progresses. Investigator Wyatt next went into the bedroom, which belonged to Lisa, and she shared that room with her baby Tanner. Right after he noticed the crib, Wyatt quickly found that the carpet in the bedroom was completely soaked with water. Lisa had a waterbed, and it leaked all over the place when it was punctured by bullets. What was even more jarring for Wyatt was the fact that the water had mixed with the blood from the victims, Lisa and Brandon. So it kind of had this pink tinge to it. The footprints that were seen in the carpeting were ones made by Anna Mae when she went into the bedroom to retrieve Tanner from his crib. Brandon was lying on his back across the foot of the bed. He was wearing a sweatshirt and shorts. His feet were hanging over the edge of the waterbed and the blood mixed with the water had touched his feet and turned his socks a light shade of pink. Lisa's body was partially under a blanket, and her head rested on a pillow. Wyatt observed a very large bloodstain on the front of Brandon's gray sweatshirt. He very gingerly lifted the sweatshirt to take a look at the wound and found a stab wound but it wasn't the only wound that he had suffered. Upon a closer look at Brandon, Wyatt observed a bullet wound under his chin with gunpowder burns around that part of his face. 
Wyatt surmised that Brandon was probably in a standing position when he was shot. Then he immediately went into a sitting position on the bed and then fell onto his back, leaving his legs and feet dangling over the wooden frame of the waterbed. Brandon had also suffered a severe skull fracture on the left side of his head, indicating that not only had he been shot and stabbed, he had also suffered blunt force trauma to his head. As for Lisa, Wyant observed her lying face up on the bed. She had on a green shirt and black shorts and had three gunshot wounds. One of them was a non-fatal wound that went into the skin tissue of her chest and missed everything vital, but the other two bullets went into her brain. One of them went through and through. The entrance was through her right eye and the exit was just below her right ear. This bullet shattered the orbital bone around her eye. These were close-range shots, leaving gunpowder burns on her skin as well. It was surmised that she had been sitting up in the bed at the time that she was shot and fell backwards. Brandon, Lisa, and Philip were murdered execution style, and Wyatt was determined to make sure that this crime scene was properly and meticulously processed. He did not want to screw this up. He knew this case was going to be big and it was going to be very problematic. Wyatt had the fingerprints that he collected at the scene sent to the forensic lab for them to be processed and examined by their latent print experts. He also took meticulous notes to document the evidence and the crime scene and he preserved everything in photographs. Now, I don't often go looking around for very many crime scene photos. And in some of my searches online for some pictures of the people involved in the story, I did catch a glimpse of an image of Philip Devine, deceased in the living room. So I knew that there were pictures somewhere online. So this time I ended up searching for where that picture was, what website it was on. And I found it on a website called Documenting Reality. I found four photos in black and white. There's one of Brandon. You can see his legs hanging off the bed. And that you could see the large blood stain on the front of his sweatshirt. And there's a close-up of the bullet wound going into Brandon's chin. And you can see the powder burns around the wound very clearly. And I have to be honest with you, I've talked about these types of things many times throughout the years, but I've never really seen these kinds of gunpowder burns around a wound like that. This picture is very graphic and vivid. There's a picture of Lisa. You can see the wound to her eye and blood coming from her mouth. And the photo of Philip, you could see him on the floor, leaned up against the sofa, kind of sort of leaning a little bit to the side with a wound on the right side of his neck. And you can barely see part of that coffee table near his lap, but the rest of the table is out of the frame. If you're curious and you want to go see the photos for yourself, I have posted the link to 
the Documenting Reality website in the show notes, but I won't be posting these pictures on social media. Investigator Wyant also took measurements of the placement and location and proximity of everything in the home, and he collected a total of six spent bullet casings, along with one live round and one spent bullet. He also collected a lighter, an ashtray, and two stains that he thought could possibly be blood. Wyant bagged everything carefully, and he kept possession of these items until they were turned over by him personally to the state's forensic lab for processing. It would be Sheriff Lux who would have the task of tending to the victims. But if you ask me, this man should not be allowed within a hundred yards of a crime scene based solely on the manner in which he handled the investigation into the last major crime that he was responsible for investigating, and that would be Brandon's rape. But whatever, I guess for these small towns like this, they have to work with what they have. And I'll fill you in more about what happened with Sheriff Lux's investigation into Brandon's rape. The county attorney, Doug Mers, had already gone back to his office to look into the potential suspects and some leads. And if anything definitive came up, he would be at the ready to draft up some warrants for their arrests. Before Sheriff Lux was going to make the final decision on what to do with the victim's bodies, he decided to go ahead and head over to the attorney's office also and consult with him about where the bodies should be transported. And this is really an event unlike anything that this small town had ever had to deal with before. So they really don't have a protocol as to what to do and... They needed to be careful and make sure they don't mess anything up, especially the Sheriff Lux. By the mid-afternoon on the day that the murders were discovered, a handful of additional Nebraska State investigators arrived in Humboldt to assist with the investigation. And the little town of barely 800 residents needed the help. In these episodes, dreamers, I really don't like using too many names unnecessarily because sometimes it's just too much, too overwhelming. But if I do have to refer back to any of these people, I will remind you who they are every time they come up throughout the discussion, just so we can all be reminded. We have investigator Roger Kranz, Wanda Townsend, Judd McKinstry, Ron Osborne, and State Trooper Mark Williams. They all arrived and met with Investigator Wyant. And while Wyant had been first on the scene and in charge of the case, it would ultimately be Investigator Roger Kranz who would take over the case. Also at this meeting, there was another deputy from the sheriff's office named Tom Olberding, and he was the one who filled the state investigators in on the rape report that Brandon Tina had made just one week earlier in which he named John Lauder and Tom Nissen as his attackers. While all of these law enforcement officers gathered at the farmhouse where these murders took place, Deputy Oberding told them, As we speak, those warrants are being prepared by County Attorney Doug Mers. 
and within the hour, the person in charge of the investigation, Roger Kranz, he went and joined the Richardson County Sheriff's and the Falls City's Police Department in bringing the rape suspects, John Lauder and Tom Nissen, into custody. They had now officially become persons of interest in this triple murder. After consulting with county attorney, Sheriff Lux headed back to the farmhouse and it was already dark by then. The rest of the world was preparing to ring in 1994. He assisted in getting Lisa, Brandon, and Philip removed from the home and brought over to the Douglas County Hospital, which was located an hour and a half north of Humboldt in Omaha, Nebraska. The autopsies on the victims were scheduled to begin the following morning, January 1st, 1994. And you know, dreamers, I can't recall if I heard about these murders at the time that they happened or if it was sometime later. I'm barely certain it was later on. But I do know that just six months later, when that infamous double murder occurred in Brentwood in June of 1994, that was a case that would dominate the news for the better part of the next year and a half where I lived in Southern California. I am not certain that Brandon's story made any kind of national headlines at the time. Some articles refer to the killings as little known until Boys Don't Cry was released in 1999. That's when Brandon Tina became a household name. I haven't seen the movie. Back when Boys Don't Cry was released in theaters, I had just given birth a couple of months earlier, and the subject matter of the movie was so depressing and sad and tragic. I just couldn't, and I just couldn't, not at that point in my life after becoming a mom. And I still haven't seen the movie. I contemplated it, as I started this story, but I just haven't been able to bring myself to do it just yet. While the investigation at Lisa Lambert's home was still going on, investigators were in the early stages of processing the scene when a couple of young women pulled up looking for Philip because he had borrowed some money from them and they wanted to collect. The young women, as it turned out, were sisters, Lana and Leslie Tisdall. The two of them weren't at all deterred by the crime scene tape that surrounded the home as they lifted it and ducked under and tried to make their way towards the entrance of the home. They were curious as to what was happening, as most people would be, but most would not waltz past the yellow tape. They were stopped, separated, and given impromptu interviews one at a time. State investigator Wanda Townsend spoke to Leslie first, who was 21 years old at the time. They talked inside a nearby patrol vehicle, and they were out of earshot of her sister, Lana. Leslie stated that she and her sister had stopped by to drop off some of Brandon's and Philip's personal effects, and that Philip owed some money, and she was hoping to get that from him. She said that she and Philip met the previous month in early November, when they both attended the Job Corps in Iowa, the next state over in the city of Denison, which was a few hours north of where Leslie and Lana lived in Fall City, Nebraska. 
When the Job Corps classes were finished, Leslie went back to Fall City and Philip decided to go with her. And I'm not sure if this move was intended to be long term, but I do know that the couple wanted to at least spend the holidays together. And if it was going to go beyond that, well, they would actually never really have the chance to figure that out. Philip had taken the Greyhound bus from where he lived in Iowa to Omaha, which is the closest bus station to Fall City. And from there, Leslie, along with her sister, Lana and Brandon, they all went together to pick him up. So the relationship between Leslie and Philip was just under two months old, but it had progressed pretty quickly. Leslie revealed to Investigator Townsend that she and Philip had a pretty huge argument the day prior to the murders. They had driven from Fall City to Humboldt, and it was during that drive that they got into a heated discussion about the state of their relationship. Philip was interested in moving things along more quickly than Leslie was really prepared to do at that time. She wanted to slow things down a little bit. And this was the catalyst for what turned into this fight. Leslie confided that she had been in some previously abusive relationships and she was apprehensive about getting too serious too fast with someone that she really didn't know all that well. And Philip had exhibited some of the warning signs that she had learned to look for. Possessiveness, jealousy, things of that sort. In Jones's book, she characterized Leslie as being incapable of recognizing a good man and a good relationship and that she didn't appreciate the potential in what she had in Philip. To me, that's somebody's opinion. I don't know where it came from. They had only met a month before in November, so I think it was too soon to really tell anyway. But the argument between them caused Philip to decide to take off with Brandon so he could crash with them at Lisa Lambert's house. So she was angry, and Leslie drove the both of them there on the 30th of December, arriving pretty early in the morning. It was about 6 a.m. She looked on from the car and watched as Philip and Brandon headed up the walk to the house. Lisa had already come out and let them through the front door. Leslie said that she did not get out of the car, and... She did not go into the house. Leslie explained that she had only been acquainted with Lisa for a couple of months, just like Philip. But the girls had already developed a close friendship, and the last time Leslie and Lisa had spoken was the same day that Philip had arrived by bus in Omaha. Philip met Brandon through Leslie's sister, Lana, who only dated or had been dating Brandon for about a week or two weeks during that time, give or take. And Brandon was living at their home in Fall City. So dreamers, you can see here that many of these key people in the case didn't really know each other for very long and things unfolded in a relatively short period of time. As for John Lauder and Tom Nissen, the two who Brandon had named as his attackers in the sexual assault that he reported to the police the week before he was murdered, they had only recently become acquainted with Philip also I'm not even really sure that they met him more than possibly once. They met him through Lisa 
and they had gone to a local bar in Falls City, like I said, once, possibly twice. Leslie let Investigator Townsend know that Brandon's name given at birth was Tina and that he, quote, acted like a man, but in reality, she was female. Townsend next spoke to Lana in the patrol car. The last time she saw Brandon was the day before the murders, sometime in the mid-afternoon. He and Philip borrowed Lisa's car and had driven from where they were staying in Humboldt to her home in Fall City, which was about a 30-minute drive, so the two of them could pick up some of their belongings. Lana told Townsend that she had only begun dating Brandon that same month of December. It had only been no more than a couple of weeks. And we'll discuss what happened in that short period of time as we go along here. But just bear in mind that Brandon had just arrived in Humboldt in December that very month, around the time that he turned 21, which was December 12th. So like I said, this is all happening in a very short window of time. Lana provided Investigator Townsend with a rundown of her activities in the day or so leading up to the murders. She said that on the evening of December 30th, she left home sometime between 5 and 6 p.m. to go with her sister, Leslie, to the Hinky Dinky, which is a supermarket chain that was founded in 1925, which operated in Nebraska and Iowa. The founders of the Hinky Dinky wanted to try to follow in the successful footsteps of the Piggly Wiggly by coming up with a cute, catchy, charming little name, and from what I can see, the stores had a pretty good 75-year run until they were bought out in 2000 and the name Hinky Dinky was dropped. The sisters had purchased some food. They went next to visit their dad. They shared dinner at his place and that was all happening around 7 p.m. on the 30th. They were also pulled over for driving with a burnt-out headlight and given a citation before going home. Later that evening, Lana tried visiting her neighbor's home twice, but that neighbor was not at home. And then about an hour later, around 10 p.m., still on the evening of the 30th, we're now going into December 31st, into the early morning hours when the murders took place. Lana's mom, Linda, I know there's all these L names, right? I'm going to do my best to help you and help me keep everybody straight and to continue to remind you who they are as we progress through this. So 10 p.m. on the 30th, Linda, Lana and Leslie's mother, asked Lana to take her to her Aunt Missy's house, and Missy would be her younger sister, Linda's younger sister, but Missy wasn't at home. Her son, Lana and Leslie's cousin named Jason, was at her house. So then Linda asked Lana to head over to Tom Nissen's home because she knew her sister was there and she wanted her to tell her to get home on the double. So Lana did as her mother asked, and she went over to talk to her Aunt Missy. Now, I looked around on the internet, and all the articles that I found identified Missy as Melissa Wisdom, and she's often referred to as Tom's girlfriend, but if you recall, in the beginning of the episode, I told you that Candy was Tom Nissen's wife, and the mother of his three maybe babies. I also was under the impression that neither Candy nor Tom cared very much about one another's extracurricular activities. So yeah, Lana goes over to Tom's house, and she did find her Aunt Missy there. 
though the two of them had to talk outside in the cold at night because Candy was apparently okay with Missy, her husband's alleged girlfriend, but for some reason, Candy hated Lana. Lana has no clue as to why, but Candy would not allow her into her home, so they had to talk on the porch. Lana told Investigator Townsend that she had seen both John Lauder and Tom Nissen in the very early morning hours of December 31st. She said it was approximately one in the morning. For some reason, the two men had come over to her mother's house. They came on foot, which was very unusual, according to Lana. They informed Linda that they had spent the whole afternoon evening drinking at a bar near Linda's home, and Lana can see that the two of them were still pretty intoxicated, but she stated that the two of them usually were intoxicated. Both of them had had several run-ins with the law, both of them had spent time in prison, and the two of them had reputations around town as being troublemakers. Lana told the investigator that she saw them again that same day, close to 12 hours later, just a little bit after 12 noon, right before she was headed to Lisa Lambert's house, which when she arrived at the scene of the murders, that's when the investigator Townsend had encountered them. John and Tom had come over to her house at that time. John was the only one who came inside to give her some clothes that belonged to Brandon while Tom waited in the car. Lana had glanced outside to see Tom seated in the vehicle and she noted that he was by himself. Lana did recall that she tried calling Lisa about an hour and a half earlier that morning at approximately 11 a.m. By that time, you know, Lisa, Philip, and Brandon were already deceased and had just been discovered less than an hour earlier by Lisa's mom, Anna Mae. When she called, she thought it was Lisa that answered the phone. The voice sounded like Lisa, but in actuality, it was her mother. And you know, sometimes moms and daughters do sound alike. My daughter and I sound similar, except my kid talks a lot faster and gossips and complains more. That's how you can tell us apart. I know that I can be gossipy too and complainy as well, but my kid is like next level because she works at a grocery store and yeah, there's always so much gossip in those types of environments, it's like a breeding ground. But anyway, Lana told who she thought was Lisa on the phone that she was coming over to see her in a little bit and the person on the other end of the line said, okay. Throughout all of this, I kind of thought that Lisa's mom was unusually calm and kept it pretty well together considering that she had just found her daughter with a couple bullets in her head. But then maybe she went into autopilot. I read someplace that she was a nurse, so... Maybe she was kind of used to staying calm under pressure and she just decided to focus on her grandson. I can't even imagine. I, I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I walked into a scene and found my child shot to death. I can see myself in hysterics, but I don't know. And frankly, I don't want to know. After talking to the sisters for about an hour, one of the most critical bits of information that Townsend got from the girls was that Brandon was sexually assaulted. And I've seen this described as a gang rape. And that happened just a week earlier on Christmas Day. Both Leslie and Lana told Townsend independently of one another that they believed John Lauder and Tom Nissen were the ones who assaulted Brandon. The state investigator in charge of the murder case, Roger Kranz, 
and Richardson County Sheriff Deputy Tom Olberding had met up with officers from the Falls City Police Department at their headquarters to get ready to arrest John and Tom on charges of kidnapping and sexually assaulting Brandon Tina. Now, Kranz is in charge of the murders, but because the victim of the rape ended up dead a week later, John and Tom were persons of interest in his case, so he wanted to be there to assist in the arrest, which was going to be handled by the sheriff's office and the Fall City Police. During this meeting, the Fall City Assistant Police Chief found that they did have enough probable cause to arrest these two suspects, so County Attorney Mertz finished up getting those arrest warrants signed off by a judge. So while they were getting ready to make the arrests, they got word from a patrol officer that John Lauder's vehicle had been spotted parked outside of Tom Nissen's residence. It was getting to the late afternoon and the sun was setting. This is winter and the days are very short. So they were in a hurry to execute these warrants and bring these guys in because they were certain that the both of them would flee if they found out that they were being taken into custody and they didn't want to risk it. They wanted these guys off the streets, but they also needed to be mindful of the safety of the officers. These were potentially two very armed and dangerous men. Once law enforcement had their plan in place, they mobilized and headed out to the home. They had the place surrounded and covered at both ends of the street on which Tom's home was located. As they watched the house, they saw Tom come out to the front door, at which point law enforcement approached him. They had their guns drawn and they soon had him down on the ground and in handcuffs. Shortly thereafter, John came out of the house next, and he joined his buddy on the ground and cuffed. It all went basically without a hitch. They were sitting in the police interrogation room less than two hours before the ringing in of the new year. As soon as Tom was read his rights, he immediately signed off and waived them. He expressed his willingness to talk to police. He said that the intention was when they went to Humboldt that they were going there to try to intimidate Brandon. State investigator Kranz, who was interrogating Tom along with Officer Keith Hayes, did not mince words. He was fairly certain that he and John were responsible for the murders of Brandon along with Lisa and Philip. Kranz also shared with Tom that he knew where the gun had come from that it had belonged to a friend of John's named Bill Bennett, and he also knew that he told his wife Candy and John told his girlfriend Rhonda to provide them with an alibi by lying to the police about the time that they arrived home in the early morning hours that morning. Tom became very emotional when Kranz brought up his wife's name, and he went ahead and provided Kranz with his official statement. According to Tom Nissen, his official sequence of events began in the early morning hours on the night of December 30th, 1993, which was a Thursday. He began from the time that he and John visited his mother's house in the town of Rulo, which is very close to the border state of Missouri and about a 40-minute drive east of Humboldt. All of these small town streamers are located in the southeastern corner of the state of Nebraska. Like I said, with Missouri to the east and Kansas to the south, but because the corner of Nebraska kind of juts out to the east a little further, because its eastern border is created by the Mississippi River, the state of Iowa also borders Nebraska down by that corner of the state as you move north away from Kansas and Missouri. 
I'm not very familiar with these regions of the United States. So as I describe it for you, I describe it for myself as well. So after they stopped at John's mother's house, they went over to a couple of local bars where they drank until closing time, which was around midnight, taking them into the morning of Friday, December 31st. They then made their way over to Tom's house where his wife, Candy, and John's girlfriend, Rhonda, were at. They had something to eat before leaving again, which Tom estimated to be close to one in the morning. From there, they went over to the home of a man named Eddie Bennett, a friend of John's, ostensibly for John to use the restroom. But Tom related to Kranz and Hayes that he learned that sometime prior to the evening, that Eddie owned a gun, and while John was inside, Tom had moved from the passenger side of the vehicle to the driver's side. A couple of minutes later, John emerged from the home and got into the passenger seat of the car, and from there, John instructed him to go to the home of where Lana and Leslie lived. Remember, Lana had briefly dated Brandon in the month of December, and Leslie had been involved in a romantic relationship with Philip for close to two months by then. Now, Lana and Leslie had somehow become friends with Tom and John, and this is a small town, and from the sounds of it, most people we are talking about in the story live in a state of poverty, and everyone has had a pretty rough upbringing, and many of these young people have had their fair share of troubles, either with drinking or drugs or with the law or everything, all of the above. And of the two sisters, Leslie, who was about three years older, then Lana was the one who had been in a bit more trouble than younger sister Lana. At the time that this story took place, Lana was 18 and Leslie was 21. And these two guys, John and Tom, they were both 22 years old at the same time with John being only about five months older than Tom. So they drove over to the sister's house. And as I was saying, they were all acquainted, but they hadn't known each other for very long. They just kind of hung out just to hang out, I guess, kind of sounds like. Anyway, while they were headed there, as Tom drove, John produced a small handgun that Tom described as appearing to be a twenty-five caliber. The gun was loaded, and John had a second clip of ammunition in his pocket. According to Tom, John was the one who said that he wanted to, quote, take care of Brandon. Tom told the officers that he wasn't clear as to what John meant by that. But dreamers, to me, that sounds like an attempt to put some distance between himself and the murders. I mean, because if I was sitting next to somebody in a car who randomly pulled out a loaded gun and stated, I want to take care of so-and-so as we are headed to the home where we believe so-and-so is staying, it's pretty obvious what that person means and that that person wants to use again to shoot so-and-so. Now, Tom has been reported to have an IQ in the low 80s, but at the same time, we're not talking rocket science here. Well, the officers questioning Tom were kind of confused at who Tom was talking about in the moment because there was nobody so far in this narrative named Brandon. So Investigator Cran said, wait, what, who? And Tom clarified, Brandon. Brandon is Tina, Tina Brandon, but he goes by Brandon Tina. Tom continued, they went over to their house, Lana and Leslie's house. 
And remember earlier, their Aunt Missy had been over at Tom's house? Well, Tom asked whether or not she had gotten home. And he couldn't remember what time he and John had arrived at Lana and Leslie's house, but said that they were only there for a few minutes. The truth was John was there to ascertain Brandon's whereabouts because he knew that Brandon and Lana had been seeing one another and he was hoping to find him there, but Brandon was not there. The next place that they went was to Humboldt, where Lisa Lambert lived with her baby Tanner at a small rural farmhouse. So somehow John was told or figured out or assumed that he might be able to find Brandon there. There's been a lot of rumors about Lana having told them where to find Brandon. That's, I'm not really clear on that right now. I might run into information as we go along, but some people tend to think that she's the one who helped lead them to where Brandon was staying. I don't think that she necessarily knew what was going to happen if she did. But anyway, we'll discuss that more later on. Because Brandon and Lisa had actually become pretty close friends in the short period of time that they knew one another, there had been this potential that they may have been in a more intimate relationship, but that wasn't the case Maybe at a different time, in a different place, under different circumstances, Brandon and Lisa may have very well had a long-lasting, loving relationship because Brandon was so good to Lisa and he adored her baby Tanner. So with Tom driving, he and John headed to Lisa's house over in Humboldt. When they arrived, Tom glanced at the dashboard and saw that it was exactly two in the morning. The house was quiet and dark, and Tom said that he was unaware of what John's intentions were. Again, like I said, this is not rocket science, so I don't believe Tom was that dumb, but I do think that he was playing dumb for the cops. But then, this idiot, right after he was trying to explain that he didn't have any idea what John was going to do next, he then told the officers that he remarked to John, I don't want to hurt anyone but Brandon. So right there, he admitted that he knew what the intent of the trip to Lisa's house was. And it also sounds like that he also knew that there were other people there other than Brandon. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said, I don't want to hurt anyone else but Brandon. And it also means because they knew where they were going, they knew that they were going to Lisa's house and that there would indeed be somebody else inside the home, and that would be Lisa and her baby, at the very least. He then said that John's response to his statement was, yeah, okay, or yeah, right. Then Tom said he issued John a warning as he prepared to go inside the home. He told him to watch out because somebody else might have a bigger gun than you, which also sounds stupid. It's two in the morning, they're about to ambush a home, where the chances are that everybody else inside is asleep and they're at a home which they know who lives there. They're relatively good friends with Lisa and they know she has her baby there. What exactly do they think that she's going to do? Come bounding out of her bed in the middle of the night holding an assault rifle? So yeah, Tom's not complicit at all, right? That he didn't know what John was going to do. That all he wanted to do was hurt Brandon 
And then he warns his good friend to be careful. It's like, dude, shut up. You're up to this in your eyeballs, you piece of shit. Yeah, Mr. Innocent then admitted to police in this interview that both he and John walked up to the front door. So yeah, this guy. He told them that they both had gloves on as they made their way up to the front door because that's not suspicious at all. Tom said that he grabbed the handle of the screen door and pulled it open and held it open while John knocked on the door because apparently it takes two idiots to access the front door in order to knock on it. So he knocked a couple of times and nobody came to the door. So John began kicking it until he was able to break it open, pulling the molding on the inside of the door off the wall. I said earlier that investigators did not find a footprint on the door. So however it was that John was kicking the door, he didn't leave any marks from the soles of his shoes. As John was creating this ruckus at the front door, Tom stated that he decided to kneel and get low to the ground because he feared that someone inside might be armed and start firing at them through the door. According to Tom's account, once they forced their way in through the front door, John went into the bedroom, located them towards the back of the farmhouse, and he shot and killed Brandon. He also shot and killed another female that Tom at the time only identified to the officers as being some other girl. And then he came back into the living room and shot Philip. Tom was unable to recall how many times he heard the gun go off, but he did say that when John was finished, he made a comment that was something to the effect that nobody gets away with narking on him. When Kranz was finished questioning Tom, he next went with Fall City Police Sergeant Ron Osborne to question John Lauder inside the cell that he was being held in at the county jail. They informed John of his Miranda rights and they immediately told him that his buddy Tom Nissen had already rolled over on him and pinned the shootings of Brandon, Lisa, and Philip squarely on him. John, in disbelief that Tom would say such things, invoked his rights to remain silent and to have an attorney. So that was the end of that. So dreamers, let's go back in time to the beginning where life started for Brandon. His mom, Joanne, had gotten married for the first time when she was a teenager. I don't exactly know how old she was when she married Patrick Brandon, but I do know that when she was 14, she gave birth to her and Patrick's first child, Tammy. I don't know Joanne's exact date of birth, but I believe she was born in 1955. So when Tammy was born in October of 1969, she would have been either 13 or 14, depending on when her birthday falls in the year. Either way, Joanne was a very young mother. And then a little more than three years later, when she was 16, on December 12, 1972, Joanne gave birth to a daughter that she named Tina. Even though there were times in Brandon's life when he expressed interest in boys and even dated boys, he began identifying as male in his teens and dated girls exclusively from then. He was misgendered and deadnamed or incorrectly labeled as a lesbian in the days, months, and years following his death, but no more. He is Brandon Tina. But Brandon would never meet his father. On April 7, 1972, 
eight months before Brandon was born, Patrick Brandon was killed in a rollover car accident near Lincoln, Nebraska. He had spent the day fishing with a friend named Martin Wilson. The both of them were 19 years old at the time, and when they were on their way home on Route 6, a few miles north of Lincoln, that's when Patrick apparently lost control of his convertible. It flipped three times and went over the side of a bridge. State Patrol reported that the vehicle had skidded off the road before it rolled at approximately 2 in the morning. Both Patrick and Martin were ejected from the vehicle, and while Martin sustained minor injuries and was treated and released, Patrick, unfortunately, was killed. Joanne had been listening to the radio later that morning but had no idea that the accident had involved her husband. She found out later on when state troopers showed up to inform the family. Joanne was in a state of shock and denial when she was first told the news, and that is until the state trooper gave her Patrick's wallet along with his wedding band, and that's when it sunk in that he was gone. There was a time when a young Joanne Brandon had dreamed of becoming a model. She had striking features, a small frame, a pretty face, and captivating eyes. And she knew that she had the potential to go far with those looks. And she had the confidence to back it up. She had even been featured in some local store catalogs when she was a child modeling clothing. So the idea of becoming a model had been something she'd aspired to for quite some time by the time she was a teenager. But after meeting and falling crazy in love with Patrick and having two children by the time she was 16, she had put on weight, and she was still pretty, but the distinctive features and beautiful cheekbones vanished. And then with the sadness over losing her husband, who was purportedly as much of a looker as she was, the hopes of a career in modeling pretty much died right along with him. With Patrick gone, Joanne had to pack up her life and her two babies across town to move into a tiny mobile home with her mother. Her name was Frances, and she also raised her children without their father. Joanne's dad, that would be Brandon's grandfather, he walked out on the family when Joanne was about seven, and her mother rarely brought up his name. She knew that he had once been a member of the Omaha Police Department. She also knew that his IQ hovered somewhere over 160 into the genius range. At least that's what she was told or came to believe. Joanne was also told that he had moved out west. What state? I don't know. She didn't specifically say, but it was someplace coastal. So there's only three options, California, Oregon, or Washington. He had begun an entirely new life as if they never existed, and Joanne never had contact with her biological father after he walked out. One of the few memories that she had of her father was that he had given several girls in the town engagement rings, which was kind of weird, and he had even given one to the young girl who occasionally babysat Joanne, and she had found this out when the babysitter's father had come over and showed them the ring that his daughter was given. And it was about this time that Joanne began to have a strong distrust of men and came to believe that all men were liars. And I mean, you know, she's not wrong, right? I'm just kidding. So Joanne also had two older brothers and one younger one. 
But yeah, Brandon's grandfather walked out on all four of his children. None of them would ever make any efforts to track him down, and he never paid a dime in child support to Brandon's grandmother. Luckily for Joanne and her brothers, their mom, Frances, managed to make a decent living for the five of them, so much so that she was able to send all of them to private schools. In addition to having aspirations of becoming a model, Joanne also had a keen interest in fashion and wanted to someday run her own company, possibly even have her own line of fashion. She desperately wanted out of small town USA. She wanted more out of life. She wanted the big city, the lights, the glitz, the glamour. She wanted to be rich. And if possible, she wanted to be famous. And the one dream that she never had was becoming a mom. Of course, all of those dreams were cut short very early on when she had Tammy at 14 and Brandon at 16. And she was widowed before Brandon had even entered this world. And to make matters even more difficult, Joanne's mom was forced to quit her lucrative job as an accountant at a landmark Omaha music store, which is still in business today and kind of looks like a guitar center. And she did so in order to help raise Tammy and Brandon. Joanne had a hard time coping with Patrick's death. They had only recently moved back to the Lincoln area after having lived with Patrick's family in Oregon for a time. She had become so desperate to get back to Nebraska that even though she was pregnant with her second child, she was losing weight instead of gaining. Following Patrick's death, Joanne had sank into a deep depression, and it stayed with her throughout her pregnancy with Brandon and beyond. In fact, she was so lost and in so much despair about being a 16-year-old single mother and widow that she had a mental breakdown and required hospitalization. Things had gotten so desperate that Joanne contemplated terminating her pregnancy. And being raised Catholic, she wouldn't have otherwise even considered it. Her physician was Catholic too and would not have performed the procedure anyway. But the thought of terminating her pregnancy suddenly, for some reason, somehow, caused a switch to flip in Joanne's mind. And she suddenly had this renewed sense of purpose and worth. And she decided that she would bring her second child into this world and she would love that child and she would raise it on her own. She would make it happen no matter what it took. The pregnancy with Brandon was rough. She experienced a lot of abdominal pains in the first trimester. In the second trimester, doctors were alarmed at the slow rate at which the baby was growing, causing Joanne to be hospitalized for several weeks. She was put on some kind of hormone treatments, which caused Joanne to put on close to 40 pounds or 18 kilograms in her third trimester. And while she believed that her due date was supposed to have been in November, Brandon just was not coming. So by the time she went into labor on December 12th, she had already had three false alarms. You know, the Braxton Hicks contractions. It was then that doctors finally decided to go through labor induction and it all happened so fast, and Joanne was knocked out just as Brandon was entering this world. Because Joanne was found to have a staph infection following Brandon's birth, she was not allowed to hold him. She was only allowed to look at him. But she actually didn't touch Brandon until he was five days old. 
She felt as though the doctors had screwed everything up in her pregnancy and birthing of Brandon, starting with the hormone treatments that caused her to gain weight, all the way to the staph infection that she believed she contracted from unsanitary conditions at the hospital. While Joanne was working on coping with everything, being sick, a new baby, and no father to help, big sister Tammy was not pleased with the new arrival and demanded that Brandon be left at the hospital. However, soon the unhappiness with the new baby gave way to Tammy embracing Brandon as her baby. You all may or may not have seen pictures of Brandon, and he was very cute, very handsome. He had beautiful facial features. He probably got from his mom, but his grandfather, his father's father, was 100% Native American. So that is where at least some of those features had come from. Brandon had dark hair, but piercing blue eyes that came from his mother's Irish heritage. So yeah, Joanne and Patrick made two beautiful babies. And Joanne, she was fiercely attached to Brandon. She held tightly to him because he was the last earthly thing from Patrick that she had. And aside from getting sick with some pretty serious viruses and health issues, Brandon was a dreamy baby. And yet, he tended to be somewhat sickly as a child, even getting mono when he was only seven. Tammy, on the other hand, was rarely sick. Brandon's mom had three brothers, two younger and one older, and they were around sporadically to lend a hand now and then. However, when Brandon was about to turn two, Joanne got married for a second time to a man named Jug. Yeah, that's it, Jug, J-U-G. And Brandon would begin referring to this new man in his mommy's life as daddy. In fact, because Brandon had taken a liking to him is the main reason Joanne agreed to marry Jug. She wanted there to be a father figure in her children's lives. But deep down, she really did not want to be with Jug. But he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over Joanne. But the feelings just were not mutual. At the wedding, as the vows were being read, when it was time for Joanne to say, I do, she didn't. There was a long, awkward pause until Jug's dad was like, hey, the judge is talking to you. She finally said, I do. At the reception, Joanne managed to sneak away for at least a couple of hours somehow to go and hide in the bathroom while she bawled her eyes out. At the time, Brandon was two months away from turning two. Tammy was going on five. The marriage, it was basically doomed from the start and it would eventually come to an end. But while Joanne acknowledged Jug was a solid person when it came to being a father figure for her kids and providing, it just wasn't enough for Joanne. While Jug adored her and treated her like a queen, he was also jealous and possessive and it was more than Joanne could handle. She couldn't even be cordial with his friends without him becoming angry. In all, the marriage lasted about five years, a little bit longer, but it was enough for Doug to have been the only dad that Brandon would ever know. But for his sister Tammy, she did have a vague recollection of her biological father, Patrick. 
Joanne had made the decision to let Brandon believe Jug was his biological dad until Brandon got a little bit older and was more capable of understanding the truth. Jug made most of his time with his stepkids while it lasted. He adored them and spent a tremendous amount of time in the outdoors with the both of them because Joanne wasn't really an outdoorsy type. He took them camping and hiking and fishing. He taught the both of them how to skate and how to ride bikes. And if they wanted a day at the amusement park, he would drive them to Kansas City where Worlds of Fun was located. That had just opened in 1973. One of Brandon and Tammy's most favorite places to visit was their Aunt Cheryl's farm in Grand Island, which isn't an island because it's right smack in the middle of the United States. But there are some lakes and a river nearby, and today there's a water park, but I don't know if that was there in the mid-70s. But anyway, Aunt Cheryl had cows and horses on her farm, and they loved playing and horseback riding around the property. Because Jug, aside from being an excellent stepdad, was also an excellent provider, that meant that Brandon and Tammy didn't have to share a bedroom like they had before Jug came along, which worked out well for the both of them because while Tammy and Brandon were close, they were also very different in many ways, and those who knew them would say that they were like polar opposites. It was apparent from very early on in Brandon's life that he did not share the same interest as his sister. Tammy decorated her room with all sorts of cute collectibles and dolls and stuffed animals. While Brandon was more of a tomboy, he was into playing with building toys like Lincoln Logs and Tinker Toys. And he was fascinated with electronics and he would take things apart to learn about how they all worked. He liked reptiles and he liked collecting things like old street signs and hanging them up in his bedroom. When Tammy would be dressed in cute pretty dresses... Brandon was usually in t-shirts and shorts and sneakers. And having a stepdad at this time in the 70s had been pretty normalized by shows like The Brady Bunch, which had moved away from that old leave-it-to-beaver family trope. They even had cable TV, which wasn't all that common in the 1970s. These years with Doug were the best years of Tammy and Brandon's childhood, hands down. When they started to get a little older, Tammy continued being as girly as possible. She would always have curls in her hair and makeup on her face. The only time Brandon ever did that was when he had to. If he was in a play at school or if there was some sort of special occasion. Joanne did force Brandon to wear dresses to school, which Brandon loathed. He would resist, but Joanne would have the final say. And if it happened to be picture day... Not wearing a dress was not an option. Joanne would admit that Brandon was very much a tomboy, but insisted he could be either or. And she really didn't think much of it at the time. There are lots of girls out there who were tomboyish, including herself. She would admit she grew up with three brothers. We know now with Brandon, it was much more than just being a tomboy. And remember, Tammy and Brandon went to private school and it was Catholic private school. So that had become ingrained in Brandon as well. There were times that he would play dress up with Tammy, but he would never dress up like the nun. He always wanted to dress up as the priest. For a time, he aspired to become a priest. And Tammy thought that was weird and funny because back then women weren't really priests. 
So she was sort of like whatever about it. And like I said, Joanne's marriage to Doug only lasted for a short period of time, about five years, a little bit more. And because they didn't have any children, the breakup was relatively simple. And there would be really no reason for it to be anything other than an easy, clean break. Though for a time, Joanne and Doug did maintain an amicable relationship after the divorce. Joanne was absolutely certain that she did not want to have children with Doug, so she religiously took birth control for the years that they were together. Apparently, Joanne thought Doug was ugly. And she was afraid that if she had children with him, that they would be ugly too. The impression that I got was that Joanne was just overall disgusted by the whole experience with Doug. And after their divorce, she said she would be sworn off marriage for life. So Joanne basically used Doug until she couldn't stand it anymore, which kind of sucks. But she was in a position where I guess she had to do what she had to do. But leaving the marriage meant things would have to change for the family. When she was married to Jug, Joanne had the ability to stay home and be the domestic at-home mom that she very much enjoyed being. She always wanted to be home for Brandon and Tammy after school. She made dinner every single night, and the evenings were spent enjoying time with her children, playing games, watching TV, just having fun. Remember, she's still relatively young herself, so this is fun and games for her to an extent. Jug had purchased Joanne an almost brand new house and he purchased her a car. And when she got hurt in a car accident, it was he who nursed her back to health. But despite everything, Joanne hated being married. She filed for a divorce a total of three times before she finally went through with it, as Jug tried as hard as he could to keep their marriage intact. And when it was all over, Jug also swore off marriage too. After getting out of that unhappy marriage, Joanne's mother, Frances, wanted her and her grandchildren to move back in with her. But she wanted to try and make a go of it on her own. So Joanne and Jug sold her house, and this gave her a bit of money from the proceeds to try to find a place on her own. She also had Social Security that Brandon and Tammy received as a result of their father's death. So she had that income. And by this time, we're getting into the 1980s, Joanne was around 25 and she just didn't want to go back to living under her mother's roof and she figured she was a bit more prepared now to take care of her children on her own. The divorce was hard on both Tammy and Brandon, but Brandon had the added shock of learning that Jug wasn't his biological father. As he understood it now, he had lost two dads so far in his life and he hadn't even yet reached the age of 10. One was dead, and the other wasn't his. So, it was a very lost and empty feeling for Brandon. Despite not being their father, Doug wanted visitation with the kids, though. But in order for that to happen, Joanne was advised that if he wanted to be awarded visitation rights, then he should be ordered to pay child support. But Doug refused. However, Joanne went ahead and allowed for the visitations anyway, thinking that that would be the best option for her children. So for a time, every other weekend, Brandon and Tammy would spend it over at Jug's place. The divorce had been particularly hard on Brandon, way more than Tammy. Brandon was very down about it and longed to be able to visit with him. 
And if for some reason something got in the way, or if Jug had a scheduling conflict with work or had to postpone a visit, Brandon would be crushed. And making things even more difficult was the fact that Jug had began dating a new woman named Debbie, and she was nothing like Joanne. She was a bit uptight and conservative, and whenever Tammy and Brandon visited, she tried being sort of mom-like, but it was in a cringe kind of a way. Tammy gave the example of a time that she sat down to try and have that talk about getting their period, and Tammy was already well aware of the whole topic, and Brandon would have rather died than have that conversation. She tried buying clothes for them, but she would go and get them from the secondhand store, which ironically became cool a decade or so later, but for them back then, it was embarrassing. I have this feeling that maybe going to the secondhand store would have been popular if you were from a wealthy family. It would be like really cool and trendy, but if you were poor and your family was living in poverty, it's probably not someplace where you cared to shop. But anyway, they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed of the way that Debbie tried to be like their mom. And I mean, like they would say in the South, bless her heart, she tried, but was failing miserably. Nebraska isn't in the South. They just have those backwards compliments there that are really insults that I like. I don't know what they say in the Midwest. You betcha for crying out loud, that sort of thing. Joanne didn't like the subtle changes that she was beginning to notice in her kids once Debbie started coming around. It was becoming apparent that Debbie saw Joanne as a threat and believed that Jug's interest in continuing his fatherly relationship with her kids was his roundabout way of hanging on to Joanne which caused Debbie to feel jealous and threatened. And Joanne was like, girl, you have nothing to worry about. I left him. If I wanted him, I'd have him, but I don't. He's yours. But that was really no consolation for Debbie. So Joanne believed because of her negative feelings towards her that Debbie decided that she would take it out on Brandon and Tammy. Joanne also came to realize that Debbie was attempting to impose her own set of rules onto the children, which basically conflicted with Joanne's own roles and felt as though Debbie was trying to undo Joanne's authority and undermine her as their mother. Finally, Joanne laid it out for Jug. Take your pick, Tammy and Brandon or Debbie. He chose Debbie. And that was yet another devastating blow for Brandon. Joanne explained to them, to the children, that it was time for Jug to move on and Tammy took the news okay. She understood. He wasn't their dad and he needed to focus on his own life. But Brandon either wouldn't or couldn't understand. And eventually for him, that hurt turned into hatred. And Jug was pretty much dead to him. After the divorce from Jug, Joanne focused on her children, but she also focused on herself. She still hung out with Patrick's sister, her name was Molly Brandon, and they stayed close after his death. They went out dancing, they took courses together at the local community college, and they would spend time out at some of the popular hangout spots in town. They were meeting people, meeting men, but for a time, Joanne was perfectly happy being single. Molly, being half Sioux Native American, 
she was beautiful and had a nuanced, exotic look about her. And the work she did, the industry that she was in, was traditionally male. She worked in construction. Molly would drive large machinery. She had been a railway worker. And she would do that type of labor-intense work for her entire life. In a way, she was similar to Brandon in that you'd rarely catch her in a dress. She was very much a tomboy, just like him. And similar to Joanne, she also had three brothers, Patrick, of course, Michael, and Joe. And like several others in the story, their father also abandoned them. So their mother had worked long hours at the Veteran of Foreign Awares Social Club as a waitress. When Joanne met Molly's brother, Patrick, and they became involved with one another, she was over at their home just about every single day, often staying the night. And it would be Molly and Patrick and Joanne who would hang out together the most. And for the most part, because they live and attended school that was diverse with a mixture of white, black, and Native American kids, things were pretty quiet and pretty smooth. They never really had any troubles with people. Molly and Patrick's parents divorced around the time Molly was in middle school and it was crushing for her to a point that she all but stopped going to school. It all changed so quickly. Suddenly her parents split and it was like dad wasn't around anymore. He came around at first occasionally, but then he just up and left. And their mother, Doris, that would be Tammy and Brandon's paternal grandmother, She had to start working two jobs in order to support the family. But eventually she met a new man, but her kids hated him and he hated kids. So she basically sacrificed spending time with her children to be with this man because she was already working two jobs and going over to his house, she wasn't there even more so. This led Molly and her brothers to begin throwing parties as they got older. They had the underage drinking and... It was also excessive since their mom wasn't there a lot. Doris, their mom, would basically drop in to check and see if the four of them were breathing and then she would be off for the night with her boyfriend. With Molly being the only girl in the family, she was often stuck with doing all the cleaning up and cooking. Later on in life, Molly would explain that she blocked out a lot of those memories, mostly out of anger and resentment towards their mother. In the wake of Joanne's divorce from Jug, she was able to make it on her own for a period of time until she couldn't. She would end up living with Doris and Molly, Tammy and Brandon's dad's side of the family, Doris being their grandmother, Molly being their aunt. And they were more than happy to have her and her kids around, Molly especially, who adored Tammy and Brandon. She spent so much of her free time with them as possible, going to the movies, taking them to the park, to the petting zoo. Brandon, in particular, was an animal lover. Eventually, though, Joanne would take her kids and go and live with her own mother, Frances. But their Aunt Molly still continued to be a constant presence in their lives. She adored her brother's kids so much. And as they grew older, she saw them to be more like siblings than her nieces that time prior to Brandon's transition. One of their favorite things to do was to drive around town, blasting the stereo, singing along, being flirty with boys. They 
didn't really notice how Brandon was when it came to boys. I guess they just didn't think about it or felt as if that there was anything going on with him because Brandon did have crushes on boys at times during elementary school and middle school. And as he got older, Brandon would make remarks or take notice if he saw a cute boy. But as far as being interested in boys any more than that, he really didn't show it or express it outwardly. There was only one time when Tammy saw Brandon making out with a boy at school, but it was only once. Their mother, Joanne, noticed that Brandon wasn't as boy crazy as Tammy was, but she really didn't think much of it. She didn't think it was that big of a deal. Her biggest concern was that Brandon kept up his grades in school, and he did. He generally did pretty well in school. He was slightly shy, but he was bright and enjoyed learning. One of his teachers had even chosen him as student of the month, and Joanne, when she heard, was over the moon with pride. She sent Tammy and Brandon to the same Catholic private school that she had gone to. She worked hard at teaching her children responsibility. She wanted them to appreciate the fruits of their labor. She wanted them to be grateful for the things that they earned, and she opened them up each a savings account when they were young so that they would learn how to save money. In the little savings books that banks used to give out, Brandon, who had only ever been referred to by his name given at birth, Tina, wrote Teen Brandon in his savings book. He dropped the A. And that would be the name that Brandon mostly would go by at that time, Teen. It was sometime around the age when Brandon was about to hit puberty that he met a girl named Sarah Gap. And there was something about Sarah that kind of triggered something in Brandon. Sarah attended a rival Catholic school and it was during a basketball game that Brandon had noticed her and he went right over to her and introduced himself and asked if he could sit down with her in the bleachers. Sarah had come to this after having a huge fight with her mom for missing communion and had actually been punished with a paddling. So she was kind of sulking and looking glum when Brandon began talking to her. But as they sat, they began chatting. And when the game got to halftime, they walked together outside the gym. And they quickly began opening up to one another. Brandon was 12. Sarah was slightly younger. And she began confiding in Brandon about the abuse that she was suffering at home with her mom using their Catholicism and the Bible as justifications for the punishments that were inflicted. If she so much as made a single sound during church, during services, that would earn her 10 hits with the paddle. It was actually sort of like a cutting board that her mom used to hit her with, starting around the age of seven. If Sarah attempted to fend off the hits with this board, mom would take aim at any other part of her body that she could to land blows on. As her mom beat her, she would constantly accuse Sarah of being a slut, and Sarah didn't even know what that word meant. And she really confided all of this into Brandon, even though she had just met him that day. She even eventually began insinuating that there was also sexual abuse going on within her family. But mainly she griped about her family being a bunch of crazy Catholics, and that was the root of all the problems. From the outside looking in, the family pretended to be Catholic 
and pretended to be God-fearing because that's what they wanted to appear to be like to the world. The reality was they were incredibly dysfunctional. They barely spoke to one another and were very distant from each other. They were hardly the loving family that you would think a religious family would be like. In fact, her mom constructed a religious altar in the living room. It had the Virgin Mary surrounded by candles and rosaries and all that stuff. And the children were forced to kneel down before this altar and kiss the ground or else they would earn 20 paddles and be sent to bed without dinner. It got so bad that in order to avoid that altar, they would walk around the outside of the house to come and go. Sometimes they would do so without even their shoes on. And if it was winter outside and there was snow everywhere, it didn't matter. They would rather walk through the sub-freezing Nebraska winters than to be forced down on their knees to kiss the ground in front of that altar. This, of course, caused them to get sick, at which point their mother would yell at them that they were going to be damned to hell. Brandon sat there and listened intently as Sarah poured her heart out. He was always known for being a really good-sounding board, and he always knew the right things to say and when to say them. Brandon sat there silently as he listened, and when Sarah finally fell silent, she had tears streaming down her cheeks. Brandon's heart broke for this girl as he looked at her face, and he noted how pretty she was even though she was crying, and he gently touched Sarah's face and wiped her tears away. Brandon was a compassionate soul, and he really felt her pain because he understood it. And he told her, you're not alone. And it was then Brandon opened up about something that was going on with him, a relative of his. Brandon told Sarah that one of his relatives was doing things that he really disliked, things that he didn't really fully understand, but he knew that it was all wrong. This relative would take his penis out. He would have Brandon touch it while he fondled Brandon, all the while telling him how good it felt and how much he knew Brandon loved it. Sarah didn't really know all that much about sex or the things that Brandon was describing. After all, Sarah's mom told her that children were born through the navel. But because Brandon had confided in her, about the sexual abuse that he was being subjected to by one of his relatives, Sarah felt pangs of guilt for feeling as though her problems were bad. This, what Brandon was describing, was bad. But the truth was both were bad. But she did feel Brandon's situation was leaps and bounds worse than her own. The two of them ended up not going back into the gym. They skipped the rest of the basketball game and spent the rest of the afternoon and evening talking. And that was the beginning of one of Brandon's first and earliest best friendships. They confided their deepest secrets and promised to never breathe a word of what they shared with anyone. And it was a promise that would be kept for many, many years. The truth was Brandon really didn't want anyone knowing about what was going on with this male relative that he told Sarah about. He didn't want this relative getting upset by him telling someone, and Brandon was afraid to make this relative angry if 
he wouldn't told anyone and if this relative would end up getting arrested or going to jail. It was humiliating for Brandon, but he still at the same time cared for and loved this relative and didn't want anything bad to happen. And Sarah was very confused by that. Brandon's loyalty to this family member, even though this family member was hurting him. Sarah's mom hurt her all the time and she despised her mother. She constantly wished for her to drop dead. But Brandon wasn't like that. One year after meeting, both Sarah and Brandon were enrolled at Pius X High School, a private Catholic school in a very nice part of Lincoln, Nebraska. It was a side of Lincoln that Sarah and Brandon weren't all that well acquainted with, being from the not-so-nice parts of Lincoln. Brandon's mom pinched every penny that she earned to send both of her kids to that exclusive high school. And I did look up the tuition today, and it's anywhere from 2800 to 3200 depending on what grade you're in. I thought that that was kind of cheap, but for a minute I forgot that we're talking about Nebraska here. I looked at Catholic schools where I'm from in California, and yeah, 2800 to 3200 is way cheap. One of the closest Catholic schools to where I grew up is called St. John Bosco, and today the tuition there is a little bit under $16,000 per year. So there was one slight problem with Joanne, Brandon and Tammy's mother, and it might have been a common problem with many of us and our parents, but Joanne was really out of touch with contemporary teenagers. Brandon entered high school in 1987, so contemporary for her at the time. I started high school in 1988, and yeah, my folks were pretty out of touch too. And I tend to think we, those of us out there who are Generation X, I don't feel like I'm all that out of touch or I don't feel like I was as out of touch as my parents were um, when my kid was in school. But Gen Xers also tend to not give a shit either. I'm just kidding. I mean, we do, but we don't. I just know that the vibe between me and my daughter versus me and my mom is way, way different. And my dad too. Well, Evelyn's dad wasn't really around, but my dad was old AF when I got to high school. Shit, my dad was old when I was born. But anyway, Joanne was out of touch, way out. She really didn't know what these spoiled Catholic private school kids were really up to in their spare time. And she certainly didn't sit down and tell Tammy or Brandon about things like the birds and the bees. She told her kids about menstruation, which was something Brandon really hated about his body, and he wanted to have nothing to do with having a period, and he certainly did not ever want to experience being pregnant or giving birth. If anything, he was adopting. And as for Catholic high school, Brandon, for the most part, hated it, but instead of bemoaning it all, what he did was he figured out any which way he could to try to make it his own kind of fun. He turned into somewhat of a class clown and he made fun of the school. One of the pranks that he pulled was stealing the toilet seats from the bathroom. And to Brandon, there was a dress code and that dress code was a joke. Girls had to wear skirts to the knee. Boys had to have their hair cut so that it didn't touch the collar of their shirts. They couldn't have facial hair and the boys couldn't have earrings. Nobody could wear jeans or hoodies. It was all khakis and dress shirts. 
and Brandon refused to wear skirts. He opted for the khaki slacks and the dress shirts and a necktie. The school may not have liked it, but technically, he was within the parameters of the dress code. Along with being a prankster, Brandon also became involved in theater, which gave him the opportunity to channel his jokes and his personality into something productive and creative. But mostly, Brandon and the friends that he had, they goofed off. They got out of going to chapel any time that they could, and they would mock all of the Catholic songs and make up their own stupid lyrics in place of all the religious junk. Brandon and Sarah did like school, and they did like going to church, but more than anything, they were fun chasers, and they would do whatever they could to liven up anything and all things boring. Which, Catholicism, I mean, you have to admit, can be kind of a bore. Brandon and Sarah were still close and hung out after school frequently. Whenever she would go over to Sarah's house, Brandon would make a big production out of the altar. He would kneel down obnoxiously and kiss the ground mockingly. Sarah's mom, who was clearly annoyed by the spectacle, would just glare and then walk away. Sarah admitted that her mom was the butt of most of hers and Brandon's inside jokes. They made up all of these nicknames for her mom. They mocked her and all of her religious television shows and books and periodicals. They were convinced that Sarah's mom was possessed or at the very least had multiple personalities. Freshman year at Pius X High School was as fun as Catholic school could be for Brandon. He just had to make his own kind of fun. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to bring this first part of this series to a close. We are discussing the tragic story of Brandon Tina this month in recognition and celebration of LBGTQ plus pride. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen and to continue to remember Brandon and all of the victims of hate crimes fueled by bigotry. I promise this won't be a long series like Theranos, and I'm determined to finish it before the end of this month. So for you bingers out there, fear not, it won't be forever. Don't forget to join the Facebook group. Bring memes if you do, okay? Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. Check out Patreon if you're looking for more content and you want to help me keep my dogs chubby. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams and love one another.